We dedicate this episode to the memory of Andres Monereo Velasco, who passed away on Good Friday in Madrid, Spain. Andres was the founding partner of Monereo Mayer Abogados, a Spanish law firm with which Harris Bricken has a close partnership. In November 2019, I had the privilege of joining Andres on two panels, one in Barcelona and one in Madrid, where we discussed business opportunities in the United States for Spanish companies. We were planning a series of follow-up events here in the United States when the COVID-19 pandemic broke out. Of the many things that I looked forward to after the end of the current pandemic was the chance to retake those plans and host Andres and our Monereo Mayor colleagues here in America. While I remain hopeful that we will soon be able to reunite with our colleagues, Andres's absence will be deeply felt by all. His loss is yet another reminder to appreciate every moment we get to spend with those whose company we value. Rest in peace, Don Andres. Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. The importance on the global stage of developing and developed nations waxes and wanes while consumption and interconnectedness steadily increase, all the while laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. But how do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens International Business Attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefort. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every week, we take a targeted look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of international experts. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us on social media to comment, and suggest future topics and guests. Today we are joined by Christina Kohler-Kalucha, a leading expert on inbound investment to China with Woodburn Accountants and Advisor, where she is the head of business advisory services. Christina is based in Hong Kong and has 17 years of experience in corporate services and compliance in China. She is an expert speaker and author of hundreds of publications on investment into China. Christina has worked with over 500 international companies across industries and sectors on their market strategy, implementation, and growth in China. She is the creator of the China Roadmap Method. Christina, welcome to Harris Brickens Global Law and Business. Thank you very much for having me. Christina, Jonathan got us started with a, an overview of your experience, but I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more, specifically how it is that, that you, you got to China, and tell us about uh, Woodburn's work in China as well, please. So to give you the story, I'd have to really track back to the beginnings of my career. I went to Duke University, and uh, in my senior year, I went home to Hong Kong for Christmas, and my brother offered me a job in the family business. And I got really excited because it meant that I didn't have to do interviews. I didn't have to look for a job. Um, it was something that was very easy coming to me. Um, and I, I said, yes, I'd do it, not knowing at all what I was going to get myself into. Um, my father actually was not happy about me joining straight up after graduation. Um, so there was a bit of uh, conflict there at that moment, but somehow my brother convinced him. Um, and then in August uh, 2003, I joined 
the family business, which has changed tremendously over the last 30 odd years, where my dad arrived in Hong Kong in the late 60s. He set up a trade agency company, and that evolved over the years into a corporate services firm, which then I joined into in, in August 2003. And on the first day of the job, my brother said to me, we're looking to open up a subsidiary in Shanghai in January 2004. You're moving over. I said, great, <laughs> fabulous. Didn't know what I was getting myself into. And he said, you've got five months now to learn about all the legalities, the tax issues, everything a corporate services advisor would need to know in order to establish a company in China. And we're going to use our own company as the guinea pig. Um, as the test run to actually incorporate our company. Uh, so 17 years later, um, I'm still working in the family business. With our old firm, we actually did sell it. In October 2015, we sold it to CSC, which is one of the largest corporate service providers in the U.S. Um, and then my brother and I stayed on for about two years, um, and, then I, and then we left. Um, and we were able to get out of our non-compete and start up Woodburn Fresh. Um, so Woodburn in itself is a relatively new entity. It's a new organization. Uh, I consider it a boutique firm. It's headquartered out of Hong Kong. We've got the Shanghai subsidiary. Very small management consulting firm advising purely foreign investors on entering the Hong Kong and Chinese market. So that's our niche. Um, doesn't really matter on the sector or the industry because ultimately the processes are the same, um, although there might be slight differences. But in terms of the services that we do is everything from pre-investment advisory, uh, incorporation, accounting, tax, payroll, all the administrative and compliance functions. So it was interesting that you said, uh, I'm, I'm a corporate attorney, and uh, so I always think about the non-competes, right? So I, I, I would have asked you about that if you hadn't mentioned it, right? I said, well, if you sold, then were you under the non-compete, and, and how long was it? And I would have just done the lawyer thing and just keep asking you questions until you told me that it's none of my business, which happens to me actually quite frequently in, in conversations with people where they're like, well, you can't ask me that. I'm like, but but I'm I'm a lawyer. I, I just ask questions. That's, that's all I do to find out what I want to know. <laughs> I bring it up automatically because that's usually the first thing people ask is, how did you get back in the business if you sold it? Right. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we were able to get out of our non-compete and start basically. So we are very interested then in what is going on in China from your perspective. You know, Fred and I do a lot of China work, inbound and outbound, but we're based in the U.S. Uh, for reasons that we're lawyers and, and China doesn't really like foreign lawyers. So it, it's uh, to some extent, it's, it's probably safer for us to stay on stateside and we can be a little more um, forceful about the way we advise companies and, and less, uh, I don't know, we don't have to hedge ourselves as much, right? So we want to hear what's going on in China from your perspective. Are, are your companies leaving? Are they coming in? You know, those trends that you're seeing. And, and do you see differences in the way um, developed nations are engaging with China from a business perspective and, and developing nations? So really curious to hear just kind of your, um, your overview uh, on the anecdotes you're, you're hearing and seeing. So I think from my perspective, I can only really look at the clients that I have. And I've been extremely fortunate in the last three years to have zero of my existing clients in China exit. So they've all stayed, even with COVID, they've stayed um, and they're prospering. 
However, if I talk to friends of mine that are in the legal profession or that are in competing corporate services firm, they will say that a certain percentage of their clients are exiting the market. And prior to COVID, I would have maybe one or two liquidations per year. Um, and generally, it was really because either the company didn't have a good strategy plan for the market and they couldn't ex execute that very well, or really there was just no, there was zero opportunity for their product or their service. Um, so that those were usually the two reasons why they would want to liquidate. Obviously, with COVID, um, and we have to talk about it because I think, you know, it's current affairs. Um, I think that did cause a lot of companies to decide to exit the market just from a financial and investment capital perspective. They couldn't manage to keep that entity running. Um, and again, like I said, I, fortunately for me, I just haven't, I haven't seen that at all with my clients. And again, with my clients, everybody was able to maintain staff levels and headcount. Only one client had to reduce salary levels um, to be able to maintain themselves. So, you know, I think there's a balance and, and particularly because my focus is really on bringing companies into China. Um, uh, and I don't do very much of the outbound or, or liquidation work. I, I don't see this on a day-to-day -day basis. Although I know it's happening. I don't know what the extent of it is. Um, and then just generally, I mean, people are wanting to go to China. I mean, since November, 2020, uh, projects have been greenlit. Uh, people are raring to go. They want to have their establishments done. They're ready to hire people. Um, they're trying to investigate ways of creating certain business models with or without having an entity on the ground. There's, there just is a lot of interest. Um, and it's peaking, which is great because I did have a period from January to November, which was very quiet. And there was a lot of negativity around China, especially due to COVID. Um, I was getting a lot of backlash and negative comments about, about the region. So it's, it's very optimistic for me now to see companies going in and actually executing their strategy plans. Do you think that this interest that you are observing, do you think it might have something to do with a perception by, by some international businesses that China has done a decent job of containing COVID as opposed to, to other countries, but more broadly that COVID has allowed China to demonstrate a certain resiliency, a certain almost indispensable nature to the world economy where companies are, are going back to the drawing board and saying, look, if anything, we're coming out of this crisis thinking that China is, we're, we're just, there's just no avoiding it. Do you think there's some of that going on behind the decision-making that businesses are, are undertaking? Yeah. I mean, when I look at the companies that I'm speaking to, right, they're all internationally oriented companies. So most of them are already doing some type of export business. Um, and when you are looking at export business, you know, where are you going to export to right now? The UK is a disaster with Brexit. When I talk to clients in the UK, they're spending two, three months dealing on shipments on customs regulations on paperwork and a lot of uk companies are thinking about setting up entities within the eu to manage their transactions um you know where does it seem easier right now it just it just seems a lot easier in china and there's two things i want to say this because you were mentioning a little bit about the COVID thing i mean 
um, I had the experience on just actual feedbacks on my newsletters and whatnot, where people were very rude, very negative towards the Chinese, towards the Chinese culture, towards China in general, towards doing business in China. Um, so COVID has brought in an emotional and psychological element that is restricting people from going into China. And on the other side, I think people are realizing if they want to survive in today's time, China is the only market right now growing. I mean, it was around 2.3% in 2020. They're predicting through the 14th five-year plan now, they're predicting a growth rate of 6% in 2021. Where else are you going to see that? You know, you, you, you've, in order to survive and or even just simply to grow, China's the market to grow in. Um, and I'm not talking about now a population of 1.4 billion. You know, how many clients do you need to survive, right? How many, how many pieces of product do you need to sell? Who's going to buy those? It's the Chinese. So you can take the point of view that, you know, you don't believe in China and what they're doing ethically and whatnot. But it's the place where people are going to buy your goods, buy your services. You've got to have the right strategy in place to do it. But at least it's going to help you either survive or at least grow. Um, and I think this is what people are realizing since November is that, okay, we've been able to survive in our head office. We've been able to manage and become stable. Um, what is the one place where we can think in the next year, in the next 12 months, you know, where we can grow? For me, the market is China. I mean, I don't say this because my business is there. That's actually, I truly believe that. I think there's no other nation where you can make an investment and you'll have a return on investment right now. Yeah, I think that's that's predominantly decision making. But, you know, there's always this emotional component that I don't want to I don't want to uh, hide away from because it is a, it's, it is one of the components that is preventing people from going into China. You know, people know they've got to go there. And on the other side, they don't want to either because of ethical issues or fear or, you know, another big issue is border controls right now. They can't travel there, so they're not comfortable making that investment, etc. So it's two sides to the coin, really. Picking up on this point about the, for lack of a better term, perhaps, let's call it anti-China sentiment. It's interesting you bring that up. We, I mean, Jonathan and I are both avid consumers of, of China content. We, we we take certain things for granted. I think it's fair to say when, when we talk about China, the same goes for our colleagues at the firm, people in our in our circles, right? But um, every once in a while, right, I'll, I'll have the opportunity to talk to someone else. Just this morning, to give you a concrete example, I was listening to um, Joe Rogan podcast, and I'm familiar with, with the topics, you know, they were talking specifically about the origins of the coronavirus. But when you listen to the way people talk about China, and, and again, these are the same issues that we talk about on the podcast and at work. So it's it's not the issues themselves, but it's the way in which things are phrased. And, and, and sometimes you need to hear that from someone else to sort of shock you. So one of the things that, for example, that they talked about today um, in this in this clip, actually it was two separate clips. One of them was about coronavirus. One of them was, was about espionage. But um, just the way, for example, in which people talk about Chinese espionage and how it takes place and and listening to to this one clip i thought hmm if, if i didn't know any better i can see how how this kind of talk how this kind of language could make me start being suspicious not just towards 
Chinese themselves, even Chinese Americans, right? Which highlights why it's so important to be very careful and nuanced about the way we talk about these topics. But coming back to your point, I think that I get the feeling that it's easy to underestimate perhaps just how just how deep that sentiment runs and just how virulent that that sentiment can be. And, and I think that when you talk about the opportunities that China presents uh, to some companies, I, I think it might be fair to say that our national conversation here, and probably the same in, in Europe, is in a way is being shaped by, by these two stories, right? You have the companies that are going to China, finding opportunities, surviving because of China, growing because of China, and saying, look, this is it. This is the modern economy. Meanwhile, you have all those companies that maybe didn't have that success. And I think a lot of the opposite sentiment finds a lot of its roots there. And we do talk to a lot of those people, people who say, look, I gave it my best. I went there. I opened the factory. I had to leave. You know, I, I, I tried. I didn't get a, a fair shot at it. And I think that if you look at government, probably within government, uh, which is also a, an important part of the policymaking process, I think there it's probably going to be even more so. Because if you look at the way government approach China or any other country, right, their metrics, they're definitely doing a lot worse than businesses, right? I mean, because in, in, in that sense, I, I think it's fair to say there's been almost no political progress in terms of getting China to where U.S. Uh, policymakers would like. So I think that maybe that that's uh, perhaps how this conversation about China is being shaped. On the one hand, you have the businesses that are that are doing well, finding opportunities, and then there are these other companies and, and others that might not be businesses who are saying, look, it hasn't worked out for us. So that's where we're going to take this kind of line. Let me also bring in something that maybe might be a little bit controversial. But for those companies that have exited the market, why have they exited? We in the Western world, the first thing that we love to do is blame people when things don't go well, right? Versus let's find a solution and let's fix it. Most of the time, what I'm seeing in terms of why people are exiting the market is either the truth, meaning either their product is too new and it's not ready for the Chinese market, or you know there, there's just not enough opportunity in the Chinese market for their product service, which can absolutely happen. And it just meant maybe they didn't do the right research from the beginning. Otherwise, yeah, you can always say you know there's a, there's a bad egg, and uh, a Chinese person tricked me. Um, was, you know, cheating me, whatever you want to say, that also happens. But most of the time you could have prevented that. You could have instilled certain processes or systems within the organization to stop that sooner rather than later. And when people go into the Chinese market, I find that they don't pay enough attention to the, to the investment that they made. And either they'll bring up excuses like time zone issues, it's too far to travel, with COVID, we haven't been able to travel, what, whatever it might be. But there are always providers out there. I mean, that's why providers exist. There are providers out there on the ground in China that can provide support to prevent any bad thing from happening. It's just a matter of whether you are ready to see that red flag and whether you're going to take action when you see that red flag. You can always blame the Chinese for doing something wrong. You know, I'm seeing more and more the trend that actually foreigners that are employed in Chinese businesses are the ones that are the bad eggs now and that are causing problems and issues within the organizations. Nobody wants to talk about that because, you know, nobody wants to say that the foreign investors are bad. 
But, you know, again, it's a bit of a controversial issue that I'm bringing up because, you know, nobody wants to take the accountability and say, I could have done more. I, I should have paid more attention to the business. I could have done X, Y, Z. I could have paid a little bit more to a provider to go in and do a legal health check or, you know, check that there really are contracts or check the finances of the company, right? I mean, there's always ways of protecting your business. You do that in the US, you do it in the UK. Why don't you do that in China? I'm bringing in a controversial point right there. But this is so true. I mean, I first moved to China in 2005, you know, so things were still a, a little wilder. And, and I would see this all the time. I would, I would see people coming in to do business and they bought into this uh, China is China mentality to such a degree that in some cases, it wasn't even that they were trying to sort of adjust their due diligence procedures to, to the Chinese conditions. It was in some cases, it was just almost like they felt like, well, there's no point in, in really trying to do these things. You know, there's really nothing we're going to accomplish by doing this. So let's just, you know, let, let's not do anything. And of course, you can't be surprised when things don't go well, right? If you haven't done your due diligence, if you haven't, like you said, simple things, you know, does this company exist? Absolutely. Do your research, right? Get data points, get, get a lawyer. I mean, I have a number of people on my speed dial, right? My lawyer is one of them. Even as a corporate service provider, I'm going to have my lawyer on my speed dial just in case, right? Um, but I will also say this, you know, there are a lot of individuals out there, um, either guys who are one-man shows or even lawyers or uh, tax people or whomever who say they know China. And this is where I get very upset and very frustrated because, Fred, you just mentioned it. You were on the ground in China. You, you know what it's physically like to live there, to be in an office, to walk around the street, go visit clients, factories and whatnot. You've seen it with your own eyes. You've smelt it. You, you know what it's like. There are people out there where I've been on panels with at very large um, association-oriented events you can t I could tell by what they were saying they had never set foot in China, right? And they're there supposed to be a China expert. One of whom I'd like to mention actually said, even if you do a joint venture, the contract means nothing. My mouth fell. You know, you're talking to 100 SMEs in the audience and you as a lawyer can say, well, China's China, contract doesn't mean anything. I, I had to rebuke that. I, I sat there and I said, I'm very sorry, but I disagree with you. And I'm not a lawyer. You should have a bulletproof contract re regardless of what you're doing in China, right? So there are these individuals that are out there. And I, I guess they're trying to attract this outbound China business, inbound China business. I, I don't know what you want to call it. And they act like they know everything. But, you know, you've got to talk to advisors who have actually lived in the market, have traveled in China, have really smelt and breathed. I have personal war stories of things that went wrong in China. You've got to be with somebody who can bring that experience and that street smart, I think you call it street smart type of China street smart type of aspect into the business. And that's something that really frustrates me with some of these guys that go out there and pretend if you haven't had a cup of hot water in the afternoon when you really wanted a coffee, then you haven't experienced China. 
I mean, I could at this point, I feel like I could completely ignore uh, the topics that we had in mind because this is a fascinating conversation. But I do want to try to bring it back to to some of that. So let's switch uh, direction a little bit. Let's talk about the business networks that a company that wants to enter China and succeed in China, right? I think this is an important point that we need to stress. I mean, as I think one of the the takeaways from this conversation is, I mean, entering is one thing, whether you want to be successful, right? That's different. So what does a company that wants to be successful in China need in terms of business networks? I'd like to talk about WeChat. I was, a, of course, a WeChat user. I don't know how you live in China and not use it. Somebody should write a book. You know, it's like that, that, that would seems to be such a, a feat. You know, if you could, you know, I, I really would want to hear that story. But let's talk about WeChat. Let's talk about the risks. My perspective on WeChat has changed since moving back to, to the United States. And um, let's talk about inf- information security. This is something we, we talk about in our blog. We certainly pay close attention to this. One of my colleagues in particular, Steve Dickinson, is, uh, tracks these issues very, very closely, and he has very profound knowledge of the regulations. It's a real pleasure to talk to him about it from the legal perspective. So I'd like to, to hear perhaps from a more practical, business-oriented perspective, uh, what are the concerns regarding information security and what can you do about them? Well, I think let's maybe start with WeChat. I think WeChat is the, the fundamental basic tool to communicate, to network, to stay in touch, to maintain relationships in China. I joined a um, webinar session about two weeks ago in the German community, and one gentleman made a comment saying, um, emails are obsolete in China. If you want a message read or an email answered or something to be answered, you've got to use WeChat. And if you don't have WeChat, don't expect your email to get answered. So for me, that was absolutely fascinating. Um, I struggle with WeChat because, again, 100% of my clients are foreign investors, so the decision makers are abroad. Um, They're not based in China, and they probably won't have WeChat yet. And now with COVID, it's quite difficult to add um, yourself to WeChat. I've tried to do it for, for people that are in other cities, and I think the issue right now is that you need the mobile phones to be next to each other in order to be able to add the users because you need somebody who already has WeChat to authenticate. So I've, I've seen issues with that right now in order to be able to get on WeChat and how to get on WeChat. My suggestion would be try to find someone physically who's near you so you can try and get that access to it. On the other side of things, you know, all of my clients use email, Zoom and WhatsApp. Those are the main methodologies at the moment, and I've had to adapt to that. So I'm struggling with the balance of email, WhatsApp, WeChat, and Zoom which is not so easy. And definitely just because of my clientele, my WeChat messages are very much delayed. Um, but that's just because of the environment that I'm in. But otherwise, you know, my school group chats are on WeChat, right? For my kids. Um, all the communities are in WeChat. I'm members of Chambers of Commerce and the communities are in WeChat. So WeChat is really fundamental for my day-to-day communication. It's what I use as my telephone, basically. Um, and if, like I, you know, like I said, if you have the ability to get on it, I would recommend you getting on it. Um, I think one of the most fundamental things you have to create for yourself in China is an ecosystem, or I call it an ecosystem. You can also call it a network of individuals that will help you to succeed in China. 
Um, and that can be a variety of different people. You can have all of the various service providers out there. So, you know, that's the lawyers, the accountants, the headhunters, the payroll guys, but it's also the media agencies, the PR professionals, um, your logistics guy, your warehousing guy, you know, all of these people are on WeChat, right? So you've got to maintain that relationship through there. In terms of security and information, because this is one of the dilemmas right now, is that people aren't using email to send contracts. They're not using email to send confidential information. They're doing it through their own personal WeChat, right? Because you can't create a, you can create a company WeChat um, username, but that's to send out news or blogs. Um, but otherwise, you as an individual are sending out this data. And this is where you just have to have strict policies. So, you know, for example, with Woodburn, we use WeChat as a chat function. Um, but anything regarding confirmation or contract documentation cannot be sent via WeChat. It has to be sent by email. Um, and even if someone says to me on WeChat, oh, Christina, just send me the document here. I just say, no, it's not our company policy. I have to send it by email. Please watch out for it. So I think everybody needs to be aware of that and have company policies. I mean, the next question will be, how do you enforce that? Um, how do you enforce that company policy? It's not always easy to do, especially because, for example, I've downloaded WeChat on my laptop. I could easily transfer documents through my laptop on the WeChat account on my computer. Um, so, you know, you, there have to be certain limitations. I don't, I'm not an IT expert in terms of how to limit all of this on your computer and whatnot, but you just have to instill certain company policies um, that then employees have to abide by. I'll take issue with one thing you said. You said email is obsolete in China. I don't think it's obsolete. I think it never took off. I remember back <laughs> yeah. when I got to China finding uh, email email addresses to be an adornment that some people had on their cards. I would get replies four months later like, oh, I checked my email and saw your, you know, your your urgent message. And I, and I get the feeling that things went downhill from 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 that point you know after wechat came online but no that's you bring up another great point about the importance of having those rules you know a lot of the work i've done involves security audits right and and this is exactly one of the issues that comes up very often when we we have the guidelines that our clients set with a high degree of concern for leakage, intellectual property protection. And then you have the reality on the ground, people saying like, look, I can't, this is not how it works, right? I need to rely on my WeChat or depending on the country, it might be some other app that I had not heard of until until that moment. Um, but I think you're right. I think ultimately you need to have that, that discipline. And I think that convenience is often the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I think uh, convenience is also uh, a paving material <laughs> when it comes to to business operations and maintaining confidential information. Absolutely. I, I just also think if you explain it to the individual and you sometimes you have to explain things to make it clear and provide clarity and transparency. But, you know, you've got to say to the staff member, listen, your WeChat is your personal account right? I don't want you to send company information through your personal WeChat account, right? Your email is a company email. I want you to send corporate documentation through that. 
in many instances, there'll be a click where they'll say, oh, yeah, you're right. It is my personal data. You know, I, I used to tell my staff, why aren't you promoting Woodburn or a previous company through LinkedIn? And I got the feedback where they said, LinkedIn is my personal page. I mean, this is my personal profile. I will decide what I will, sh- what content I will share, what content I will post. Um, and, you know, my job has nothing to do with my LinkedIn profile. I was like, okay, on one side, I'm thinking not a team player. And on the other side, I mean, actually, fair enough. It is their personal page, right? It is their personal prerogative, whether they want to share content, like content, or do anything on LinkedIn. Um, but that's that's sort of the balance, right? And it's like that with WeChat, too. Hashtag LinkedIn is not Facebook. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen that hashtag. I have. <laughs> what else would you use LinkedIn for, right? It's, it's. I mean, I can understand Facebook, maybe even Twitter, right? But what, what else? If, if you have these concerns with LinkedIn, you're using it wrong. <laughs> I agree. But that was actually the feedback that I got from several Western staff members of mine. <laughs> what can you do? Just also to highlight a little bit about your point about internal processes. I mean, you know, having internal guidelines about how to use WeChat is just one aspect. You have to create an operational guideline for your employees in China so they know what they can and cannot do. And a lot of people grunt about this, and I don't understand why. The advantage of having having an operational guideline is, one, you're going to protect yourself. But number two, generally turnover of staff is high. So why wouldn't you want an operational guideline to ease training, to ease the onboarding of new employees and things like that? Um, yeah, that's also another one of my frustration points that I get with, with a lot of clients. So, Christina, let's turn to the topic of why foreign companies fail in China and also a little bit about what, what is the best way to enter the China market. I know those are those are tied together, right? And and I can vouch for what you said earlier that sometimes the foreign investors are the bad actors because I was on a, a transaction that was trying to close at the end of last year. And it was a transaction between two U.S. companies and assets being sold were China operations. I was representing the buyer. So as we dug into uh, the China operations, it became clear that this U.S. company operating in China knew that they were not operating by the law. It was very clear. And when we asked them about it, they said, so can you explain why uh, your representative office is exceeding the scope of what it's supposed to be able to do in China and why you've been paying these employees uh, half under the table? Um, All we got back was kind of the shoulder shrug and saying, well, that's, you know, that's just how we've been doing business. There was no remorse and there was no explanation other than a shoulder shrug. And so my client ended up walking away. As I said, this is this is not something that you wanted to dip your toe into. I know you're on the formation side and, and market entry side, but what do you know? What have you seen about why companies are failing in China? There's so many reasons. I think probably the biggest one, um, and I and I, I have a pretty strict criteria on this. I don't talk to companies that don't have research and data on their fingertips about China, about the market, about the sector or the industry that they're in. Probably one of the biggest failures that I've seen is people don't do enough research about the market at all. So they see this huge opportunity. They see this huge potential. They've heard of case studies, um, but they don't actually physically do the research. You know, like what is the market size? What is the market segmentation? Um, Is there already brand awareness? Is there brand loyalty? Uh, Who are my competitors? not just the Westerners, but who are also your Chinese competitors? 
what are the price points? You know, there's so much that you've got to look at going into the market. You can't go in blindfolded because something is going to trip you up. There's going to be a rock in your journey that's then going to cut you off. So I, I tend to be quite strict now and say, if, if you don't have data at your fingertips, I cannot help you going into the Chinese market. I'm not the right advisor for you. So I think that's number one is really you've got to have data at your fingertips. You've got to know what you're getting yourself into. You've got to know the market size. What is the potential? Um, and that will lead you to so much clarity in terms of what business model you should be creating, how you should structure that business model. Um, I think the other thing um, that rocked my boat, <laughs> which also almost caused us failure early on, was um, I never wanted to rock the boat. I was too scared to rock the boat. So, for example, if I thought a staff member was not reaching their potential or was actually, I don't want to say cheating me, not, not cheating me per se, but just, you know, not working to their full potential, um, you know, I, I or was just simply not good. I didn't want to rock the boat. I was so scared of firing people of losing people and then having this high turnover that everybody hears about in China. Um, I was scared to do that. And as a consequence, because I did not have the right team, I did not also have the right team members giving me their opinions, being proactive with me, um, giving me also their own piece of advice on how to move forward and how to grow. Um, I, it took me a long time to, to grow. You know, where you would expect to break even within the first three to five years, it took me double that amount of time because I just didn't want to rock the boat. Um, so I think, you know, one of the things is if you see a bad general manager or if you have a gut feeling they're not doing the job right or, you know, investigate it by all means, but fire, <laughs> terminate. Don't have this fear of keeping uh poor employees on board that just aren't on the same journey as you in terms of growing the company and reaching its potential. Um, so yeah, I mean, the data points, the employees, and then um, I think those that think they can do it by themselves and they don't have to pay for advisors. Big one, right? You, you just mentioned this one client, you know, paying 50% of the salary under the table. Um, there's still a representative office. They didn't upgrade themselves to a limited liability company because they didn't want to pay for external help. So if you're not going to pay for external help like uh, other types of service providers or, you know, one of the biggest trends right now is the consumer sector. All types of brands are trying to sell their products into the Chinese market through e-commerce. No point setting up a shop on Tmall or Taobao or any of these platforms you don't have a media strategy and a brand strategy, but you got to pay for that brand strategy and you've got to dispense some resources into that. Otherwise, how are people going to be aware that you're on these platforms that, you know, you're interested in selling? So sometimes I get the impression that people still nowadays feel like China's supposed to be cheap. And so they don't have to pay for advice or they can just wing it because everybody's winging it. Um, it's not the case. You know, we're in 2021 now. It's a legitimate jurisdiction to enter into. And if you don't want to fail, you've, you've got to make sure you've got the right resources on hand, the right research on hand, the right people, and all of this. So, Christina, you bring up some excellent points, all of them. 
Uh, I like what you said about employees not being on the same journey as, as you are. That's, I think, an issue not only in China, frankly, businesses not doing their research. It's frankly irritating to see companies going into China saying, you know, we were really successful in our home market. And then when you ask them like, okay, yeah, but your entire business model is built around this particular item, this food, this this drink that is really popular in your home market. But are you really confident that you're going to be able to to sell that in China? And sometimes that that, that arrogance, right, is, I mean, and, and of course, we, we know how those stories turn out. And also, like you said, if perhaps there was a time when things were more freewheeling, that time has come to an end. And I know that there's a certain amount of nostalgia that some people have for that. And then I certainly got to experience some of that uh, in formal China. But we can all agree that that's in the past. You know, if you're looking for for an environment that offers that sort of Wild West approach, China isn't it anymore. There might be some places out there, but China certainly isn't isn't it. Let's turn to marketing. This is one of my my favorite subjects. Generally, I enjoy participating in our in our in our in our marketing activities at the firm. Obviously, love to talk to others about about marketing, especially people like you that bring together business and marketing right uh, uh, in a in a in an integral fashion. And don't look at them as, as two sort of separate things, right? They're they're very related. So your firms are very active on the on the marketing side, especially or including, I should say, uh, social media marketing. So tell us a little bit more about this. You know, what what goes into your strategy? How do you decide? You know, of course, in general terms, right? How do you decide? These are the clients that we want to target. These are the the substantive or geographical areas we we want to to target and any other companies that you think are doing a good job, right? Who can people look to as inspiration or a model on how how things are, you know, and who's doing a good job when it comes to marketing? I think my philosophy around Woodburn's marketing is that in order for a foreign investor to make a decisive move to go into the Chinese market, they have to be educated. And I think that there is a lot of outdated content about China on the internet. So my belief is, first of all, I need to create updated content about what is happening today. And I openly say to people, please don't read articles that are over 12 months old, because most likely that will be outdated. It, it won't be valid as of today. So if you're doing a Google search and you're writing, I don't know, cosmetic company setup, don't read anything that is over 12 months old because there are new regulations in the cosmetic sector that are coming out quarterly, right? So you've got to know that, number one, you've got to educate yourself. Um, my mantra in China is knowledge is power. I could have avoided a lot of mistakes personally if I would have known a little bit more and had the interest to learn a little bit more, or have this network of individuals that if I didn't know something in a certain area, they could have helped me out with. So having that network of people who are knowledgeable is key. So around my philosophy around our marketing is creating content that is up to date, creating content that is written in layman's terms um, is also very important for me, and very short articles. Um, I actually don't like to read. I somehow got into a habit of reading so much when I first arrived in China 
that somehow I'm, I'm not into it anymore. And I love podcasts and webinars. So our biggest marketing methodology right now is everything around webinars. And we have a monthly webinar series around different topics. It's not only me that's speaking. I bring in guest speakers um, because, again, I want to show that you can't just work with one person. You've got to have this network of individuals that are contributing to your growth in China. So I try to get different guest speakers to come on, um, talking about their expertise. What, what would they like to talk about? That's a trend right now. Um, and so, yeah, we have a webinar series. It's always the last week of the month and it's four or five days. So one webinar topic, one big theme, one webinar topic per day. Um, and usually it runs for about 90 minutes or so. And then I have these different methodologies that I'm trying to educate people on. Um, so, you know, in the intro, it said I was the creator of the China Roadmap Methodology. Uh, I'm also creator of the China Incorporation Blueprint and the China Profit Accelerator. These are all just programs that I've developed to educate people on what they have to think about, kind of like a checklist. What do they have to think about on their whole China roadmap? What do they have to think about when they're setting up a company? So in the incorporation phase, and what do they have to think about from a financial perspective in terms of growing? Because that's also a big failure that I see in many companies is not paying attention to P&Ls, balance sheets, not reading or analyzing financial management reports. Um, so those are three programs I created that are three workshops basically um, that are free of charge. They're all complimentary and are part of this marketing that I'm doing um, to promote. And, you know, I'm a little bit different because I'm not, I'm not marketing myself to Chinese consumers or a Chinese audience. I'm, I'm in China marketing myself to foreign investors. So obviously I'm using platforms like LinkedIn predominantly. Um, I do a little bit on Facebook because <laughs> I never know who might be looking on there. But I, I predominantly use LinkedIn to, to share all my content. And then on WeChat, we've created a WeChat um, China Roadmap community where I've got my existing clients, providers, and potential clients, and anyone who's interested actually joining in. It's a growing community. We're about 40, 50 people now where you can use that as a base to ask questions. So the other day, someone was asking, you know, does anyone have experience with border controls at the moment? How can we get business visas? Can we get business visas? Um, other people, there was a breakout in Shanghai. I forget when that was before Chinese New Year. And so, you know, I raised a question saying for folks that are in Shanghai, can you share your experience? What's happening there right now with the COVID cases? Is it preventing you from going to work? Is it preventing you from, from doing things? Um, so it's, it's just an opportunity for people who are in China, not in China, interested in doing business in China to ask questions. You know, I always say there's never a dumb question when it comes to China. So just ask it. And I'm pretty sure somebody will give their two cents about it. Um, so those are the main I mean, those are the main marketing avenues. And then I'm also a member of several associations. So China, China related associations um, that help to bring in leads as well. I just want to point out what you were talking about regarding outdated material. That is so true. That is so true. I mean, 
even if it's less than 12 months old, right? I mean, because there's stuff that's just inaccurate to start with or or somebody republishing some outdated crap. But to illustrate just how bad this is, I often have to cite the, the company law in China. And sometimes it's just easier for me to Google it rather than go and, and, and find the, the, the version that I have saved. And the other day I was, I knew the, the article that I was looking for. Um, I just wanted a specific language and I, 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 I was thinking what, what's wrong with this? Well, this was the Moff, I think it was the Moffcom website and they had the old version, like the 2003 version of the company law, not the 2018 one. So even government sources in China. Exactly. So be very careful, be very careful. And if something really hinges on that language and you can't tell for sure, then talk to a professional advisor that can that can confirm that, right? And, and this is um, not just an issue in China, right? I mean, there's um, sometimes there's a, a new version of the law that's going to come out. And in some countries, you don't have as much publicity as, as we do here. Here, we know in advance that there's going to be a change, but that might not be the case in some other markets, right? But absolutely, I mean, have to endorse that 100%. Don't trust material on the web. It might be outdated. I also think, though, you need to be weary of talking to advisors <laughs> because, again, there are these one-man shows out there. So, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll be blunt and open about this. You know, when we had our previous company, I was hiring Westerners that were new to China, right? And you can't tell me that they knew the practicalities of how to do business in China. They didn't. I was hiring them as advisors, though, um, and they all had legal backgrounds, but not legal backgrounds in China, right? So this is also another thing that I want to push is when you're talking to advisors, talk to advisors that have a good length of experience in the market versus the newcomers who've had one or two two years of experience because what i what i want to say that with this is that um even when laws come out you know the formal law has been implemented it does not mean that practically speaking that's how you do it <laughs> so you know one of the things with the new foreign investment law for example is that um You've got registered capital and total investment. These terms might not mean anything to you, but it's just an example that's popped in my head. And in theory, total investment has been scraped from the foreign investment law. But when you establish a company, you still have to add it in. It's a requirement, right? So in practicality, when we're establishing companies still, even though it's not in the law, I still need to ask the client to provide me with this figure. So you've got to then talk to advisors or work with professionals that have been in China for a certain length of time who can tell you, yes, it's written in the law. We know that. But practically speaking, this is not how it's implemented in Shanghai or implemented in Guangzhou or implemented in Beijing or wherever else. Um, there's a fine line with that that you have to be careful of as well. Christina, it's been really great having you on the show with us today. We always like to end with recommendations from you, Fred, and me about uh, something that others can look into, something you've read, something you've listened to, something you've watched that's been engaging for you. And this can be a recent thing or it can be something that you kind of turn to every once in a while because it, it's a solid uh, solid input for, for the way you see the world. So what do you have for us today? I've got two podcasts. One is called Wealth Without Borders and it's done by Howard Whiteson, who is a um, wealth manager based in Shanghai. And I love his podcast because he doesn't talk about wealth. He brings in uh, people who are based in China, 
who are in a variety of different industries and sectors, and he gives them eight minutes to explain how to do business in China. Um, that's one podcast that I love listening to. And the other one is done by a guy named Os Oscar Fuchs, who's also based in, out of Shanghai. And he does a podcast called China Mosaic. And it's lovely because he brings in also guest speakers, um, Westerners, Chinese, whomever. He has three or four questions that he asks. It's always the same questions about what's your favorite Chinese food? What was your favorite one-time experience? Um, what was your favorite one-time event in China? And it just brings so much insight into life. I mean, just simply life in China, um, not just how to do business. And I sometimes think you need to have those two things, knowing how to do business plus just how people live on a day-to-day -day basis to understand a little bit more how, how things work. Great. Thank you for those recommendations. Fred, what do you have for us? It's an easy one this week. Last weekend, I saw a movie on Netflix called White Tiger. It's an Indian movie and it is, it is fantastic. It is one of the best movies I've seen. It has elements from uh, Parasite. It has elements from Slumdog Millionaire, Sacred Games, if you've seen that series on Netflix. It has uh, a little bit of, of each of those, but it, it is just fantastic. The acting is great. The, um, the cinematography and production are, are fantastic. Just a, a, a super movie. So um, I would set this aside for, for a time when you, you know, one of those special movie nights when you're going to sit down and, and are going to be paying full attention to it. Excellent uh, movie, White Tiger. Uh, what about you, Jonathan? There's a great article that came out recently in the Smithsonian Magazine, and the title is The Once Classified Tale of Juanita Moody. Uh, so I never get sick of spy stories, and Juanita was the head of the NSA's Cuba desk during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Of course, she was one of, uh, I think she may have been the only woman at the NSA in that in that uh, department, right, in that division during the time. So, And she was quite young. I think she was still in her 30s when she became the head of the Cuba desk. So uh, very interesting story. Uh, it's fun as, as these things get declassified, uh, we get, uh, they come to light and that's how, that's how we can now hear about what she was involved in, in uh, during that time. So I highly recommend it. The once classified tale of Juanita Moody in the Smithsonian Magazine. Christina, we want to thank you again. It's been great having you. We hope that at some point we can check in with you again and see how business is going and what you've what you've learned and what you're seeing. We certainly value your uh, your boots on the ground uh, thoughts. So thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. Hopefully we can catch up actually in China at some point in the future. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue discussing developments in global law and business. This podcast was produced by Harris Bricken with executive producer Madeline Williams, music composed by Stephen Schmidt. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then. Thank you.